You are listening to the Akron Abide Bible Study Podcast. For more information, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Abide. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, I will set Alex's mind at ease and let all of you down easy. There will be no Alex stories today. We're here to worship the King. Let's pray together. Father, it is good. Good to be together. It's good to sit under your word, and it's good to know that you, by your son, reign and sit on the throne now. It's what Christmas reminds us is that our king came. He stepped off his throne, and he took on flesh as a baby, which is what we celebrate when we celebrate Advent. We celebrate that he comes. He came to seek and save the lost. But he also came to remind us that he rules and reigns as king. As we look at this text together this morning, I pray that you'd be with each of us, that you would cut through the familiarity of the text, a text that we all know and have probably heard many times, but that you would remind us, quicken our hearts by the power of the Spirit to the truth that Christ Jesus is king and he reigns today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the text we're going to be looking at this morning is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We actually read it this morning as you were lighting the Advent candle by, a, uh, by an odd providence. I chose the same text without even talking to Mike about the one that's going to be read today. So that's, that's a blessing. So let me read it to you here this morning. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. They say this. For to us a child is born... For us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this famous text has a context. Often we don't think about it in relation to to what we think of when we hear it. It's Jesus' birth announcement. But chapters 7 through 9 are one unit. And it's a unit involving wicked King Ahaz, Isaiah, and this prophecy. What's going on is, is the coming Assyrians, they're a very big problem for this king. He has no faith. No faith in God, no faith that that even though the mighty looks large, that God will move on his behalf. And God gives Isaiah visions of this coming one. Back in chapter 7, it says uh, this, this coming one will be Emmanuel, God with us, another famous Christmas text. The text that we're looking at today is the second proclamation of this one who is coming. And because this is God's answer to invasion, a child, a baby born and given to his people. This is the plan God chose. This is the revelation he gave to Isaiah. This may not be what you would think of to be the best answer of your problem if you're King Ahaz. God, I would would prefer, you know, something more tangible like chariots or weapons or strength or power or today we would say technology, influence, all these types of things is what we would want. But instead God says, I will provide you with a child. 
And there are two interesting factors about this child, at least I find them interesting, hopefully you do too. One is that in verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So this child will be born, but he will also be given. He will come from a woman, but he will be endowed to us like a gift. The second factor, there is no direct fulfillment in Isaiah. So oftentimes when you read an Old Testament prophet, you can see maybe, okay, uh, it looks like this text is about both Christ and maybe another interim. No one came to fulfill this prophecy in the way that other prophecies get fulfilled. This, this king, this child king that is to be born, they're, 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 no, one, no one showed up. And so it, it's left hanging there wondering what will this fulfillment be? You finish the book of Isaiah and you think, who is this king that is coming? It's not super clear. But you know, I know, if you've been Christian for more than one Christmas, or if you've heard Handel's Messiah, you know exactly who this is about. This text is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as we go this morning, I want to show you a few points in the New Testament that affirm that. But let's zoom in specifically on verses 6 and 7, looking at that, them together. The first touch point I would give you in verse 6 is, For unto us a child is born, for to us the son is given. It sounds a lot like, and I think Luke is playing off this in Luke chapter 2. Remember this, he says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. What? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. He will be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. So though it's not a direct quote, that sounds a lot like who this king child is. Now, this text shows us that Jesus is a king. There are many aspects of Christ and his work, and this text points us to that fact. He is also Savior. He is also friend. He has is, he is many other things to us and to the world. But in this text, we're looking specifically at his kingship. So what do we need to know about this king that is coming, or now we would say has come? Let's dive in. First thing is he will be and he will have a great name. He has four names in verse 6. And actually, if, you're, if you were reading this along chapter by chapter, you would have saw one of his names in chapter 7. We already mentioned it, Emmanuel, God with us. But we see here in verse 6, we have four names. We have wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, sadly, each one of those titles should get its own sermon. I'm giving you one of three points. So we're going to condense it, and we're going to try to get a glimpse of what's going on, knowing that... Uh, they're really, we could, we could just park here all morning and thinking about how these four titles, these names, describe Christ. The first one is Wonderful Counselor. So what's unique about this is that it could mean a lot of different things, or two different things, actually. The word could literally be trans translated wonder. So we could say he has, he's Wonder Counselor, meaning he counsels and gives great and wonderful counseling. Or it could mean wonderful counselor, meaning he's so good at it. I would actually prefer it be both. Because he both gives the greatest counsel, and he is the greatest counselor. He is wisdom personified in Proverbs 8. And think about it like this. Jesus, in his words in the gospel, no one was wiser. No one gave better counsel. No one better understood the human condition. 
or could make a better point than Jesus of Nazareth. The, the, the Pharisees couldn't trip him up. No one could stop him. There was nothing to catch. He was too perfect and too wonderful to be tarnished by any question, doubt, or concern. Think about what his words do for us today. Are there better counsels than Christ Jesus? Are there better words to the brokenhearted than the gospels of Jesus Christ? They strengthen us. They encourage us. They, they stretch us. Because his counsel is wonderful. Too wonderful for words. And as king, he reigns and rules. And the counsel he gives us as our king is not only good and wonderful, but it's worthy of being followed and devoting our life to. We devote our, our lives to the words and the counsels of Jesus Christ. The next title is Mighty God. Now this name puts to rest any question of whom and where Jesus comes from. Because Jesus is God. And he is a mighty God. And what powerful words there are. God's word says that Jesus is sitting on the throne today. More on that in a moment. And that throne is powerful because Jesus is God. And think about how that would stretch the imagination of those who would hear it. If you're a, a Jew in the, in the first century before Jesus shows up on the scene, you're thinking to yourself, how can this king be God? How can man be God? We might understand a king to be a, a a, a wonderful counselor. We might be able to understand that they might be a prince of peace, but these two in the middle, mighty God and everlasting Father, there aren't too many people that fit that bill. There's only one. And we don't just have the time to think about the implications of this truth, but do you know that you serve and submit to the mighty God when you put your trust in Jesus Christ? He rules and reigns and is actively working to bring about the completion of his kingdom to come with all of his children brought into the fold. So are you weak, weary, stumbling, or under trial in this season? Know that your God is mighty, and he delivers. Eternal Father. Well, now we're off the reservation, right? I mean, we're clearly talking about only one person. We cannot, there's a reason why there was no other king that could possibly fulfill this prophecy other than King Jesus. And this one can be tough at first glance, right? Because we look at it and we say, okay, we're all good Trinitarians. We all understand that, that Jesus is the Son. Jesus is not the Father. So how do we put that together? And I, I think we want to remember the context of the prophecy. Remember, we're thinking about Jesus' kingship. So what type of king will he be? Well, he's a king like a father. He is both eternal. He lasts forever. And he acts and, and, and rules like a father. So is Christ a tyrant on his throne? No, he acts like a father caring for his children. The character of his leadership is like a dad leading his family. He is tender, firm, fair, but unwavering. So don't let this confuse you, but let it encourage you to know that Jesus is the father king that has no end in time. It is not hard or difficult to be led by a father who leads for eternity. And the final name is Prince of Peace. The last one here, it's just a beautiful alliteration, right? Prince of Peace. So not only is he like a father, but his kingdom will be marked by peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom. I don't think you need to know the Hebrew to understand what that means, but maybe you've heard that word in certain Christian circles. But the main idea of that word is that it's an all-encompassing peace. It's more than just an emotional or situational relenting of trial, but it's total and full peace. Think of heaven. Heaven would be the greatest picture of shalom. 
peace, peace with everything, everyone. It's a peace that endures. We get glimpses of this now. We get foretastes of it, a little bit of heaven. But that complete and total peace will only come through Christ Jesus. And it only comes either in this time, in this life, or in the next, the nearer we are to our king. Now, the second aspect of this text would be that his kingdom will grow and expand. So now that we know something about the king, let's see what, the, what his rule and reign will look like. So look in verse 7. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this idea of his government or his rule, it will be increasing, so it will grow, and what will mark that growth will be peace. The reign will also be without an end. So notice how those titles of his name really tie into the attributes of his kingdom. He is eternal, and so is his reign. It will be forever. There will be no end. He's the prince of peace. And his kingdom will be marked by peace. And we notice, we notice back in verse 6 that this government will be upon his shoulder. He will carry it. He is the king and the only one who will uphold and, and grow this king. The kingdom of Christ is upheld and it is expanded and has grown because it rests on his shoulders, not ours. There's a place for us in, in Christ's kingdom, but Christ's work of ruling and reigning is his alone to carry. And just like he is the prince of peace, his kingdom is this way. Now there's some, some texts, again, oddly enough, we read one of them this morning in John 14, where it says, Jesus said, I give you my peace, right? There, so Jesus says, I have a peace to give, I give it. Why? Because he's the prince of peace. And also, if you look in Ephesians chapter 2, specifically in verse 14, it says that Jesus is the peace that brings Gentiles and Jews together. So Christ has this, this peace where he really is peace personified. And if you would like to join me in Romans chapter 1, he does what is possibly one of the most serious uh, pieces that we can, I wouldn't say possibly, it's the most important piece that any of us could or should be leaving with here this morning. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, that is Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, by we, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces and goes on from there. But it says here, the, the peace that comes between God and man is one Jesus Christ. And this is where we stop for a moment and we ask ourselves, and I ask you, and we have to ask ourselves, what is our relationship to God today? Our, if you continue reading in the book of Isaiah, 59.2 says, your sins have created a separation between you and your God. So the Bible says that anything done by thought, word, deed, or motivation contrary to the scriptures is actually contrary to God. And the word we use in Christian circles for that is sin. So every thought, word, deed, action, you name it, anything that goes separate and against what God has said to us in his word is sin. And the Bible tells us that because of the fall of man, we are born in sin and we are sinners. And sin drives a wedge between us and God. And we see here that there is but one remedy. 
one remedy between God and man, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. So part of the peace that he brings is not just governmental peace, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, all that Christmas jazz, but realistically, what he actually does is he creates peace for rebel sinners like us to come to, Christ, to God through him. Going on in Romans 5. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right, right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. In verse 8, everybody, you probably know it. If you grew up in Baptist circles like me and, and, and my kids, you learned this one, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news of Christmas is that Christ came to seek and save lost, rebel, dead sinners like us. And he brings peace. Now we have peace with God through Christ. So if you are here this morning and the Spirit is revealing to you, as that young girl was revealed to earlier this week, that my sins have created a separation between me and God, I am woefully undone. And it is clear to me that sin abounds in my life, and I cannot come before God without help. That help comes in Christ alone. So turn, put your trust in Christ today, that he would lead you to God, and you will truly understand the joy of Christmas so much more than fun songs and great traditions, but salvation. Now, back in Isaiah 7, because we're only halfway through this text, a couple other things to look at as we, as we start to land this plane Back in 9-7, we see that the king will sit on David's throne. I hear a dirty rumor that you guys talked a little bit about Jesus and David and the connection there. So I won't uh, go hard at that. I, I'm sure you're all already there. There are basically four texts that I could think of that, that help us see the relevance of Jesus and David's throne. So this text is one of them, right? That he sits on the throne of David. We also saw in like 2 Samuel 7 that God promises to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So we know that this son is coming to sit on the throne forever. Psalm 89 said his, his offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the son is before me. Matthew 1.1 says that Jesus Christ is the son of David. Part of the reason why that lineage is in there is not to bore you or to get you off to a very poor start on your Bible in a year program because you're like, oh, I'm already reading names. No, the point is that Jesus Christ is the son of David. That means something. If he is king and son of David, and he says he reigns, he's sitting on the throne being talked about in Isaiah 9, 7. And also in Luke chapter 1, it says this about Jesus. It says, the, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. So Luke was a very, very good Old Testament Bible reader. And even when he's not quoting the Old Testament directly, he's saying things that points us to texts that a good Jew would know. Therefore, we should, should know them too. So God promised David that he would have a descendant to sit on his throne forever. That makes, that makes Jesus being the son of David in Matthew 1.1 so important. He is the fulfillment of all the promises God made to David. And to Israel. This text shows us that this king will come as a child and he will be God. He will be eternal and he will have a government or a rule that will have no end. He will sit on the throne of David. He will uphold it and establish it and support it by his perfect justice and righteousness. It says that there in verse 7. That's it. He establishes, upholds, and he upholds it with justice and righteousness. And you pair that with 
Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So again, it's all, you guys ever watch those TV shows, those, those shows that have the guy with the map and the, and the red lines and he's trying to connect it, like who shot JFK and all that stuff? That, you're connecting the dots here with text like this. You're seeing the crux of the issue is that all of the Bible is pointing towards one person and that person is Jesus Christ. And I don't think it could be said any more explicit than this. Hebrews 1.8 says, But of the Son, meaning Jesus, he said this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So in, the, in that, the author of Hebrews is saying, The Son is God, and this God sits on the throne, and the throne will reign forever. So the New Testament completely affirms the Son of David will sit on God's throne, and that Son is Jesus Christ. And he rules and reigns now and will forever. Which leads us to the final point this morning, which is his reign will be forever and guaranteed. So the section ends with a time frame and a promise. First it says that his reign will be from this time forth and forevermore. And the promise that the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. We can understand this, right? His first coming, his first advent, Christmas is what we think about when, when we think about the fact that his, the coming of his kingdom. So Jesus teaches us that his kingdom is coming. He, he preaches about that while he's on earth. And we know that, that the kingdom of God is kind of inaugurated when Jesus comes the first time. But we know it's not all the way there. If you think about like in John 18, 36, where he's standing before Pilate, he says, my, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, uh, you wouldn't be having the, the, the authority you think you have. So we have to hold these two things together. There's a first and a second advent. We're celebrating Christmas this morning. Christ has come, but there's the second coming of Christ where he will come to kind of swoop everybody up and, and, and finalize human time and come again. So we have to realize that he is sitting on the throne now. Uh, his kingdom is inaugurated. It's not all the way here. Sometimes you hear it said it's now and yet not yet. But know this, Hebrews 1, 2 through 4 says, He appointed his son. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he sits on the throne today. He is reigning today. We know from other texts that there will be wars and rumors of wars and tribulations and trials and difficulties in this life, but there will come a second day, a second advent, or a second Christmas, if you will, where he will come back riding on a white horse, drawing together every believer from every corner of the globe. He'll bring them together, and every knee, every tongue will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. All hail King Jesus. And finally, how do we know that this will be accomplished? The end of verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The power of the Almighty is behind this king, and it will accomplish all that he sees fit to do. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things, and, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's a great verse to remember. No purpose of God's can ever be stopped. So as we close, what, where do we go from here? What do we, what do we take from here? I have four I think just simple points of application. Typically when you come somewhere and you don't know anybody, your, your application points get far more vanilla. And these are quite vanilla, but I think they're helpful. So first one would be this. God's plan doesn't always make sense to our eyes. 
Uzziah wanted something great and mighty and a show of force, God said, I'm going to send a baby 2,000 years later. Wasn't what the king was looking for, but it's what the king needed. And oftentimes for us, the plan for our life is not the way it would go if we could write it ourselves. It just doesn't. The, you know, Christmas kind of puts a highlight on that, right? The traditions and, and the, the memories and the family, all that stuff can, can come together to create this feeling of, I had a plan for my life and it's not the plan that I thought it would be. But God's plan, though God's plan doesn't always make sense to our eyes, he has a plan. And number two is that because Christ is the answer to our most troubling problems. Please hear me. Christ is the answer to all of our most troubling problems. We talked just a minute ago about salvation and that Christ is our answer for salvation. Yes and amen. But unless you're saved on your deathbed, you'll have an entire life of stuff and problems that you will need to deal with. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he is the answer to those problems too. There's an author that I love. His name is Jerry Bridges. He says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel isn't just for the lost or for the baby Christians. These aren't, when the Testament talks about you need meat and not milk, they're not talking about the gospel there. They're not talking about the work of Jesus Christ in broken, lost sinners like us. Because the good news is, though God saves us, the tricky thing is we're still sinners. And we still have uh, sin happening to us and around us and, our, and our, our plans don't work and sin kind of infuses themselves. Sometimes it's our sin, sometimes it's the sin of others. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he is the answer. He will bring you through it. He will take you through it. He will care for you in it. He will walk with you. He is the God who is interceding. He's sitting at the right hand. That is Hebrews 7. Jesus, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us today. Do you know that Jesus is praying and speaking to God the Father for you today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ? That's your king. Your king is sitting on the throne, and he's saying, worship me, bow before me. But he's also saying, give me a minute. And he's leaning over, and he's speaking to his Father on behalf of you and me. So he is the answer to our most troubling problems. Number three, he is the answer because he is ruling and reigning now so we can trust him. Christ rules on the throne today. And we come, when we come boldly before the throne of grace for our time of need, he hears our prayers and the word says any prayer that we ask that lines up with his will will be done. We can throw mountains into seas. We can see crazy stuff happen because God says, if it is my will and you ask for it, you have not because you ask not. So ask me for it. There is this wonderful mystery in the Christian life where Jesus is on the throne. God has a plan. But part of that plan that he has is the prayers of his people coming before him in our time of need and asking. So we come before him because he is king and he is able to hear and able to move. And, and God's plan will work out for our good, as Romans 8 says, as we trust him and come to him. So let us worship him, knowing that he is King Jesus. And finally, God always accomplishes his purpose with the zeal of the only God of the universe. When God moves, it's decisive and it's done. In the zeal of the heaven of hosts, God Almighty will move on that behalf and on your behalf. So trust that God has a plan. Christ is the answer and will and we'll walk you through these times. Seek him, worship him, trust him, and know that when, when God's plan is to move, it will 
be done. So it all comes down to faith, the gift that God gives all of his children. So turn to him and rely on the grace he gives you to hold these truths close to your heart and in your mind in Christ Jesus. This sermon this morning is not about what you must do, but what God has done. There is a line from one of my favorite Christmas songs. It says, come and see what God has done. It is usually about sending Christ, but it's so much more than that because he didn't just send Christ and then say, good luck, but he purchased you from sin and death and brought you into everlasting life. So come and see what he has done from beginning to end. He seeks and saves the lost. He rules and reigns as your king. He is your savior. He is your king. He is your friend. Let us bow down and thank him for completing what he came to do on that first Christmas morning. He gave his perfect life as a sacrifice for us. Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, and God in us. How glorious. So rest in him this Christmas. The work is done. Salvation is complete. Now we rest in the eternal rest of being secured in Christ's blood and righteousness. We rest in and we worship our king, King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, oh Father, we come before you thankful. Thankful hearts knowing that Christ Jesus has completed the work of salvation and now he sits at your right hand, ruling and reigning, seeing that his peace and his kingdom will expand, that his children will be brought into the fold, and that human history will ultimately point to his great work and his great kingship. When we think of Christmas, we think of Jesus coming, and God, thank you for sending your son. But remind us that Christmas came that he might live and die and carry our sins to the cross. And that when resurrected, you, you accepted his payment and you brought him back from the dead. And now he visibly shows up and shows the world that his payment for sin is complete. And he who knew no sin now has become sin for us that we might become your righteousness. And as he sits on the right hand of the throne, interceding and praying for us, may we spend this Christmas season worshiping him knowing that he is the God who saves. He is the God who endures. He is the God who walks with us in our, in our darkest moments. That's the baby. That's the king we're worshiping this Christmas. So give us eyes to see and hearts to be renewed in the work of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.